The end of the first movement of Stravinsky's Pulcinella Suite, an extraordinary and glittering and very early example of neoclassicism in music, and it's the vessel through which today we're going to be exploring that particular form. Stravinsky used as his model the music of Pergolesi, or so he thought. In actual fact, it's subsequently come to light that a lot of the pieces of Pergolesi were in fact by Domenico Gallo. But anyway, that's splitting hairs. And also, we shouldn't really call it neoclassical, this piece, because Pergolesi and Gallo are both musicians of the Baroque, i.e. the first half of the 18th century. So strictly speaking, we're talking about neo-Baroque music. But there we are. Terms have their limitations. Now, let's look at the definition of neoclassicism. Strictly translated, it means new classicism. In other words, looking back at the art of the past, reimagining it in our own time. A good analogy, I think, to explore, certainly in terms of what Stravinsky does in his version of neoclassicism, is the screen prints of Andy Warhol. You know that famous one where he took the image of the Mona Lisa and literally kind of threw fluorescent acid at it. That's specifically what Stravinsky does in the Pulcinello Suite. It's timely, I think, these days, particularly in this country, that we look at neoclassicism and enjoy it for what it is, because there is a kind of, there's an insecurity, particularly, say, in architecture. There's somehow this sense today that we can't make anything beautiful anymore, so we have to run away and hide behind the beauty of the past. And that also, I suppose, in the early days of the authentic instrument brigade or group, particularly the more kind of fusty scholastic end of that, this idea of trying so hard to reimagine the 18th century that you practically have to become an 18th century person to do it, which clearly isn't possible. Um, and the worst end of that, the most extreme end of that, uh, those wonderful remarks by Pinker Sukerman, which I think make a lot of sense when he said it was like a load of cheap reproduction furniture. Now, what Stravinsky does is rather like what Warhol did with the Mona Lisa. He takes these models by Pergolesi or Gallo and completely reimagines them, stares at them through his own 20th century spectacles. The piece, I should say, was written in 1919. Now, before we go any further, there's a couple of members of the audience who have got questions for us, so let's fire away with the first of those. Uh, my name is Mariana Hay, and my question is, to what extent has Stravinsky altered the harmony from the original models in Pulcinella? So, to what extent has Stravinsky altered the harmony from the original models, the Pergolesi or Gallo models? Well, we can explore that absolutely perfectly from the very opening bars of the first movement. Let me play, first of all, what we hear essentially of Pergolesi in this music, or Gallo. This is from uh, a trio sonata, the first one, number one in G. Let's hear now, first of all, what the first violin, the cello, the bass and the bassoon have. As I say, essentially the Baroque model. So far, so good. Very nice, very clear harmony, following absolutely a Baroque model. Now, what happens then when we add the violas into the mix? Did you hear at the end of the first bar, just a little cloud of dissonance there. Stravinsky's starting to add his own little sense of dissonance, of acid. Now, let's hear what the oboes and the second violins are doing. Let's hear those on their own. You hear that? Kind of wrong note harmony. Let's add that into the whole equation. And in fact, let's have everyone together. Listen particularly to what the horns do. They are so often in this piece the rogues of the pack. Plenty of wrong note harmony there. Now 
here we get an oboe theme, which is a continuation of the same core melody. Listen to it on its own, and then you'll hear what the bassoon does by way of embroidery. Very neat indeed. Now, next we get the next continuation of the melody, which is in the two violins. I should say that this piece is constructed along the lines of a concerto grosso from the Baroque period. In other words, that you have the main orchestra grouped around us, the ripieno, and then you have a solo string quintet in the middle who are called the concertino. They are the solo group of the whole. Now, the solo first and second violins have a theme, and uh, I'm going to play it to you as it was originally written, i.e. in the 18th century. Now listen very carefully to it. We're going to play it to you again now as Stravinsky has altered it. And there's a couple of extra beats in there. A strange and unsettling elongation of what was otherwise a very neat little symmetrical piece of Baroque writing. Now let's get to the second movement, which is called the Serenata. Now this is from an opera, definitely by Pergolesi, which is called uh, Il Flaminio. It's a pastoral aria sung all about uh, a shepherdess who's going to sort of shade herself under the trees and sing a little song while all the ewe lambs eat the grass. It's a very kind of pretty evocative picture that's painted. Now, of course, it uses the form of Siciliana, which is very common for Baroque composers to do. Siciliana is basically a 12-8, where the beats are divided into three rather than two. So you get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, a sort of gentle swaying quality which Stravinsky uses and exploits to great effect. Let's just hear first of all the oboe who has the theme. Thank you very much indeed. Now let's add in over the top of that what the flutes have by way of an accompaniment. Very natural in this kind of texture. Yada. So you're stressing the downbeat, the first beat, obviously, but also the third beat of each beat group. One, two, three. One, two, three. Okay, so oboe and flutes together. You get the idea. Now, finally, we just need to add in underneath that the cellos, who've got an extraordinary filigree little, little figure which underlines what the flutes are doing. So, Stravinsky constantly adding new colour, stretching the possibilities of what is a very simple form. Let's look now at how that idea gets taken further. You know how I was saying this thing that you go, one, two, three, one, two, three. Well, a little bit later on, that becomes really explicit in what the basses have to do. bass playing.
So by this constant attention to little details of the originals, Stravinsky is making something completely new and completely of his own. Now, let's move on to the third movement, so-called scherzino. There are actually three themes to this, two from one trio sonata, number two, and the third theme is from the eighth trio sonata. And uh, one of the things I think that's extraordinary about this is it's all about how the bridges work between these three themes, as we'll discover. Firstly, though, let's just enjoy it for the extraordinary orchestration at work. How, when you're a genius like Stravinsky, you can take a simple little melody and pass it around the orchestra without ever losing its integrity. little octave figure, yakadum, yakadum, that keeps coming in the melody of the original. Listen to how Stravinsky further exploits that on its own, just as a little kind of nugget. So let's play three before 21, please. Now, let's look at the first bridge. As I was saying, bridge is a key to this. How he links the first theme into the second theme. Completely new musical texture. And indeed, this is completely new music. This is one of those rare places where all that you hear in this first bridge is pure Stravinsky. theme, the second theme from this second trio sonata, which is essentially yup bop bop bar. Let's just hear it without the solo violin, because she's got something different. Simple enough. Now, Stravinsky, because he wants to have fun, adds in a solo violin here, playing something a bit like a sort of Baroque violin extemporization. Continuous running semiquavers through, between, round, over the top of that simple figure. solo viola. Good. Let's look at figure 39 now, please. Classic Stravinskyan device at work here, ladies and gentlemen, where he's going across the bars with his rhythm. We've got this basic 3-8. Uh, 1, 2-3, Listen how he puts the strings across these bars.
Now another bridge. And we're into the third theme. Here comes the horn. Pass back to the flute. wonderful way that he was then using the solo violin as a counterpoint to the melody that the flute had. He takes that idea of the flute and violin working alongside each other to an even greater extent just shortly afterwards. You get the flute and you get both the solo violins working around what the flute has. And then, so beautiful is that, lest we think that he's getting too serious for a moment, the last few bars of the piece, he does the most absurd, a chalorando, really putting on the gas to drive us to the end. You wouldn't find that in Baroque music. Now, from another opera, by Pergolesi, Il Fratello Innamorato, comes a Tarantella, which is the next movement of the Pulcinella Suite. Now, Tarantella is an Italian word, of course, which is all to do with the bite you can get from a tarantula, which causes a disease called tarantism. And the Tarantella is a dance which is both the display of the symptom of the disease, but also its cure. So it's a really crazy, crazy thing. What's great about it also is that Stravinsky basically writes it in 6 8. Yada da 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 1 2 1 2. But he pits against that 3 4. So if you've got the 3 going 1 2 3 1 2 3 1 2 3 1 2 3 1 2 1 2 1 2 1 2 which creates a fantastic kind of frisson of tension. Let's try it. wonderful bridge at the end of this mad little tarantella to take us forward into the next movement, which is toccata. Now, toccata, another Italian word, means touched, literally. And in the composers of the high baroque, particularly J.S. Bach, one thinks of, used uh, the toccata to an extremely virtuosic degree. As I said, it means touched. So basically, it's showing off the dexterity of a player, as well as their ability to be very, very rapid. And Stravinsky's version of Toccata here is very, very bullish. So we'll just do the bridge into it. Big offbeat chord. 
you hear how we just extended the end of that phrase? Going along nicely, two in a bar, and then suddenly we get a bar of three, four, for no apparent reason at all. Just Stravinsky having a little fun. Let's play once again, upbeat to 67, please. trombone note upon which to finish that thoroughly irreverent toccata. Now, the gavotte comes next, and I believe we have a question relating to that. I'm Pin Chui, and my question is, what are the similarities and differences between the gavotte and each of its two variations? Okay, so what are the similarities or differences between the gavotte and its two variations? Obviously, by that, you'll understand that it does have two variations. Essentially, it sets itself up and then we get two different contrasting types of texture to explore how it might develop. It's written just for wind band, which is interesting. And, of course, there's a, another point which is of value, I think, in looking at Pulcinella, that in terms of inhabiting the music of the 18th century, there are, of course, no clarinets, an instrument which, as I'm sure many of you know, Stravinsky wrote like a god for. But in this piece, he restrained himself and kept the clarinets out of the equation because, of course, there weren't really clarinets as such in the early part of the 18th century. So we're going to play the beginning of this now. Let's hear, first of all, the, the theme, which is then varied through the piece, as it occurs in the first oboe. Now, in listening to that, I'm sure you've already got in your own head a sense of what the harmony might be to accompany that. Now, Stravinsky sticks pretty strictly to the harmony that we all might imagine of that beautiful Baroque theme, but with, again, a few bits of wrong note harmony thrown in for good measure. Let's try all together. that could have been written in the Baroque. Not exactly like that. Let's look at then how the theme develops. We get it now in the first flute, and listen particularly to what the horn is doing, just nagging away with, again, this sort of wrong note harmony, a sense of something not quite right. Pass to the oboe. That's essentially 
the first part of the gavotte. Now, you get the first variation, and in the original it goes into 6-8, so it's a more kind of lilting quality to it. And that repeats itself. Then let's look at how it develops. Let's first of all hear the first oboe on its own. Now let's add the bassoons in underneath that, still basically within a Baroque idiom. Finally, let's add in the two horns, the trumpet and the trombone. You get here a kind of a harmony which refuses to budge, sort of putting the anchor on where this sprightly little Baroque music wants to go. Stravinsky just won't let it. Then we get into the second variation. Now here, there's a delicious sense of the tune being passed around between the instruments. Let's hear just the flute and horn, please, first. Now the horn comes in as accompaniment. Now let's add in what the first bassoon is doing, something very cheeky now, something slightly on the wrong side of tasteful, certainly not something Pergolesi would have written. Then, if that was in danger of being in too much like good taste, there is then a fantastically raw, rustic, peasant-like vivo, which actually comes from a symphonia for cello and brass, probably by Pergolesi, but certainly not like this. <laughs> Fantastic bass solo coming up here, ladies and gentlemen. Straight out of the carnival, the animals, really. He's just getting into his stride. Well, let's really do it now. 91, please. Mm. 
outrageous. Now, we get a minuet, which is really exquisitely beautiful. Stravinsky at his most beautiful, and as he piles it on, as you'll hear, he adds to the tension, adds to the sense that we're really building to the climax of this piece now. Let's just play the very start of it to hear how he extends the theme. Did you hear that there's kind of a beat missing there? But he cuts the beat out, you get So he shorten the bar by beat. Again, disgustingly bad taste in terms of the Baroque. Let's play once more. And boy, are we into the finale. Now, the finale, the way that Stravinsky treats this music, which comes from the Trio Sonata No. 12, by Pergolesi, by Gallo, again, who knows? There are three nuggets from this that he uses. Firstly, what you just heard. Then, there's a little something which the horns have slightly later on, which is another part of the original melody that Stravinsky exploits. Very particular angular rhythm there. It's quite, quite a lot of anguish to it. Then let's look at 104, please. Just listen to what the two flutes have here. So essentially, those are the three elements which make up this extraordinary, world beating finale. last text we just heard there, is so Spanish, don't you think? And I think one of the things that Stravinsky most love about Pergolesi and about Neapolitan music was that it had a huge amount of Spain in it, precisely those kind of 
cocksure effects that you get. And one. Perfect open and lustrous C major to finish the piece, very much in common with the Rake's Progress, Stravinsky's opera, another neoclassical piece, also much of it in C major. Open and robust. We'll play the piece for you now, Stravinsky's Pulcinella Suite. 